Jonah chapter 1, Jonah's disobedience, his flight from the call of God. Verse 1, Jonah 1, 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, lain down, and fallen sound asleep. So the captain approached him and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots so we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So they said to him, what should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea, then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. However, the men rowed desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, we earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. When we study the book of Jonah, there are several subjects that come up in relation to this book that are often discussed, studied, debated, some by skeptics, some by believers, but a lot of issues that come up in relation to this. First, the topics or the issues that come up, and then some background, and then an exposition of chapter one. Well, one of the topics is the historicity of Jonah. Was Jonah real? And was the, were the events of this book real events, actual historical events? Another is the miracles of Jonah. There are a few miracles that occur in this book in chapter 1 and 2, and then in chapter 3 
a conversion of a city, city-state. And then in chapter 4, a couple of miracles there. So, the miracles of Jonah, what are we to make of them? What are the significant issues that come up or the implications of these miracles? Including and especially him being swallowed by the great fish or the whale. Another subject that comes up is the conversion of the mariners. The mariners, did they, the sailors, did they convert? What is it that has happened as a result of God calming the sea? Furthermore, Jonah's prayer in the great fish. Many issues come up with his prayer, which is actually more than one prayer. Though it's known as Jonah's prayer, there's actually a couple of other prayers embedded in the bigger prayer. Furthermore, in the prayer, he mentions Sheol. What is Sheol? And what is Jonah's relationship to Sheol? And not only Jonah's relationship, but the people of the Old Testament, saints and sinners of the Old Testament. What was their relationship to it? Jonah's proclamation to Nineveh. What do we make of his proclamation? It says in chapter 3, Verse 4, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. What exactly did he mean in that proclamation? Furthermore, in chapter 3, we have the conversion of the Ninevites. The conversion of the Ninevites. Actually, some don't believe they were converted. They think that this is a superficial conversion, not a real conversion. Then in chapter 4, we have two main issues. That is, Jonah's bitter reaction to God's forgiveness of the Ninevites. Jonah's bitter reaction, and then God's compassion for the people. God's compassion for the people, but also people, generally speaking. Also, we must ask, did Jonah preach the gospel? And is his own experience in the fish or the whale, a type of Christ. What actually happened to Jonah and what is its relationship to the gospel of Christ? Another topic is apostolic interpretation. This is one of the prophets who is mentioned a few times in the New Testament, in Matthew and Luke. And when he is mentioned, the apostolic interpretation what place does it have? Should it reign supreme? Should we go on the basis of what the apostles say to make sure we correctly interpret the book? Yes or no. Furthermore, predestination and human responsibility. What are the relationships between predestination and human responsibility in this book? The reason this is an important issue and topic has to do with the free will theists, also called open theists. These philosophers, theologians, and common people, they believe that God did not know what the response of the Ninevites would be. God did not know based on human free will. Moreover, was Jonah's message in chapter 3, verse 4, a conditional message? or unconditional message? Was it conditional, meaning if you repent and believe, then you won't be overthrown? Or was it unconditional? Was it absolute and certain that they would be destroyed? Repentance and faith 
are also topics that come up in chapter 3, repentance and faith. What is the nature of true repentance? What is the nature of true faith? And then lastly, disobedience, the disobedience of the believer. Jonah, is he an example of a believer who was temporarily disobedient? Was he a disobedient believer or was he altogether an unbeliever? Was Jonah a believer or an unbeliever? And if a believer, was he temporarily disobedient? These and related subjects are many that come up in this book. Even though it's a short book, its contents have a lot of important implications. Okay, we'll explore these topics one by one, chapter by chapter. Well, the setting of the book of Jonah. What is its setting? When did it take place? What are the historical aspects of this book? The book of Jonah is one of the few prophets that does not correlate his prophecy to the reign of a king. He does not explicitly in his book, just like the previous study in the book of Obadiah, Obadiah does not do that either. This happens occasionally where a book of the Bible is not correlated, not corresponding explicitly to the reign of a king or some other major event. However, Jonah is mentioned as a prophet of the Lord in the book of 2 Kings. In the book of 2 Kings 14, 2 Kings 14, 23 to 29. And when we read there, we read that he was a prophet in the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash. Jeroboam, son of Joash, 2 Kings 14, 23 to 29. This Jeroboam is also known by historians as Jeroboam II, because it was Jeroboam I, son of Nabat, Jeroboam I, who is also in the Bible called Jeroboam, son of Nabat. He was the first king of Israel, the northern kingdom. This Jeroboam, son of Joash, called Jeroboam II, is also king of Israel a couple of centuries later, about two centuries later, 200 years later. His reign was about 793 to 753 B.C. 793 to 753 B.C. Let's see what it says in 2 Kings 14, 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper 
for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. God, in his mercy, used an evil king, Jeroboam, and a good, righteous prophet, a prophet of the Lord, according to verse 25, Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. He used these two men to preserve the northern kingdom, Israel, the tribes, the majority of the tribes in the north. He used these two men. Jonah, obviously, according to 2 Kings, was a historical man, a prophet. And through his preaching, God extended or restored the border of Israel. The territory they lost from predecessors, were, were the, that territory was regained under Jeroboam and Jonah. According to the word of the Lord, verse 25 says. So this means Jonah was historical, he was a true prophet of God, and his, in his preaching, there was a restoration and preservation of Israel. One more note to make is, in verse 25, it says that Jonah was from Gath Hefer. This is a village in the northern tribe of the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Zebulun in the north, a village there, which means that Jonah was a northerner. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah in the south. He wasn't from the area around Jerusalem or the tribe of Judah. He was from the north. And what do we make of that? In the history that's written in the book of Kings, and also partially in Chronicles, but mainly in the book of Kings, the northern kingdom had no good king. All 20 of their kings were evil. And Jonah lived in that environment. Not only did he live in that environment, God called him to preach to his own people in the north, but also sent him temporarily 500 miles away to Nineveh in northern Mesopotamia on the banks of the Tigris River to that great city which was a powerful city at that time, to preach to them. Not only to preach to his own countrymen, but to preach to those foreigners, to preach repentance. Okay, now an exposition of the chapter. Chapter 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, that expression, the word of the Lord, is the same that we saw in 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Did we not? The word of the Lord, which means that Jonah received a true oracle from God, a true word from God. Not a fake one, but a true word. He was a true prophet. We don't know who this is, the son of Amittai, but it has the effect of distinguishing him, distinguishing him from others, others in the history of Israel, that this Jonah, the son of Amittai, was a prophet. And actually, it mentions him as well in 2 Kings 14, 25, being the son of Amittai. So we are dealing with 
one and the same Jonah. No mistaking who we're addressing. Verse 2, the word of God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Arise, go to Nineveh, a clear call to preach and to go. Get up and go. Not difficult words to understand, not difficult to do if one has a willing heart, but he didn't. Now this Nineveh, we said it was on the eastern bank of the Tigris River in northern Mesopotamia. It's modern Mosul, M-O-S-U-L. Modern Mosul was ancient Nineveh. At one point, it was the seat of the capital of the Assyrian kingdom, Assyrian empire. It was a powerful place. Jonah's time, according to the reign of Jeroboam, Jeroboam lived and reigned in 793 to 753 BC. It's likely that Jonah preached at some point in that period to Nineveh. Likely not after 753 BC. If that is the case, there is one king of Nineveh. His name is Ashur Dan, and historians call him Ashur Dan III. His reign was 771 to 754 BC. 771 to 754, which means that there is an overlap with Jeroboam, son of Joash. During his time, there were recorded in Assyrian annals, Assyrian chronicles, Assyrian records, plagues and a total eclipse. Plagues and a total eclipse. The plagues in 765 and 759 BC, total eclipse in 763 BC. The reason for trying to correlate to that king of Assyria has to do with um, circumstances that might have been unusual circumstances that they had experienced and made them on edge and perhaps ready to receive the prophet of God and his word, especially if he threatened overthrow, which he does in chapter 3. He threatens the overthrow of the nation. Also, a point of clarification, if Jonah preached to Nineveh, didn't Nahum the prophet also preach to Nineveh? Yes, the prophet Nahum also did. But Nahum did about a hundred years later. And Nahum's prophecy is an absolute prophecy, meaning it's too late for you, Nineveh. You will certainly be destroyed. There's nothing you can do to withstand, to ward off this judgment of God. It's certainly going to happen. Nahum the prophet preached against Assyria and Nineveh too, about a hundred years later. Another thing to note about these dates is that this repentance of the Ninevites, and however it might have spread, it was not widespread enough and lasting enough. It was not widespread enough and lasting enough, meaning the next generation didn't repent. Why? 
because in 722 BC, the Assyrians came to destroy Jonah's country, and they did in 2 Kings 17. In 722 BC, the Assyrians who received Jonah's message here rejected it in the next generation and came to invade and conquer Israel, the northern kingdom, which kingdom never existed after that, 722 BC. Let's say about 30 years later, about 30 years later, they came and wiped out Israel, all the tribes of the north. Well, in this case, God calls Nineveh the great city. It's great in that it's a large city. It's got a lot of people. In chapter 4, verse 11, more than 120,000 persons, 120,000 persons. And it's great in that sense. It's very powerful. It's the seat of authority. It's a capital city. And in those ways, God desires for his word to be preached there. It's got a lot of people, according to chapter 4, verse, verses 10, 9, 10, and 11. So then, cry against it. To cry against it means that there must be a proclamation preaching against their sin which means it has to be a proclamation of repentance, which is what they do. In chapter 3, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, verse 4, but they repent according to verses 5 to 10. In verses 5 to 10, chapter 3, they actually do repent because Jonah preached against their sins. It says in verse 2, their wickedness has come up before me. The sin of people or the, the wickedness of people reaches a certain point and when it comes to God's presence or God's attention or God's limit of patience, God sends a messenger often before he destroys them. This is what happened in Genesis 18, 20 to 21. The wickedness of Sodom came up before the Lord, before the Lord judged it. And Abraham interceded, Lot was there, but there weren't enough righteous people for God to spare it. This is a figure of speech. The free will theists, open theists say, their wickedness has come up before me in that God was busy with other things and then it received his attention now. So now God is awakened and ready to act. That's kind of the way that they look at God in this book. But that's not the case. It's merely a figure of speech, a metaphor for God to say that now it's time to confront them. That's all he means. It's now time to confront them. Well, we have a clear word in verse 2, but as is the problem with the human heart, the clear word does not resolve disobedience. Verse 3, but Jonah rose up to flee. God did tell him to arise in verse 2. Jonah did arise in verse 3, 
but he arose to flee. Instead of arising to go, he arises to flee, to avoid doing the will of God. This is clearly sin and disobedience. No doubt he's fleeing from God. To Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. Tarshish is one of two locations, one of two cities, either in ancient um, Asia or Asia Minor in that area, which is in modern Turkey. It would be on the southern side of Turkey, on the coast or northern Mediterranean Sea, the northern Mediterranean Sea or southern Turkey on the coast, a major city called Tarshish. This would be the same city of Saul of Tarsus. Acts chapter 9, Paul the Apostle, Saul of Tarsus, was raised in this city because there was a large Jewish colony in that city. Perhaps this is where Jonah wants to go. We don't know if there was a large enough Jewish colony there for Jonah to flee there, but it is certainly outside of Israel. One of the major ways to reach it is to go by sea, the Mediterranean Sea, Israel being on the eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea and Tarshish being on the northern side. It would take a ship to get there if you're going by sea. And that was one regular route from Joppa to Tarshish. The other location of Tarshish is said to be in Spain. Some think that he wanted to go as far west as to Spain in Europe. It's likely that he went to, he wanted to go to this one in southern Turkey, northern Mesopotamia of the two views. It's likely that he went there because that is the one that is prominent and consistently talked about in the Bible. The one that's in northern, the northern area of the Mediterranean Sea, southern Turkey. Um, further, it says, from the presence of the Lord. What could this mean, from the presence of the Lord? Obviously, the Bible isn't teaching that God is locally present. So how would it be that if Jonah fled to Nineveh or to Tarshish, God would not be able to seize him or convict him or call him or to give him an oracle there? So it's not talking about it in that sense. It has to be likely in two or three senses. The presence of the Lord, starting from the book of the law, starting from the books of Exodus and Leviticus, the presence of the Lord has to do with receiving oracles from God in the tabernacle or later in the temple. The presence of the Lord would mean from the tabernacle or temple, when the priest or the prophet enters the temple, receiving an oracle from the presence of God there. Probably that's what it means, that he was there at some point, and when he was there, he received this word from God 
to go preach to Nineveh when he was either worshiping or visiting the temple for some reason. And by this point, it would be the temple because Jonah lives about 200 years after Solomon. Solomon uh, reigned about 970 to 930 BC, and that would be the time that Solomon built the temple, the first temple, Solomon's temple as it's known. The other issue or the other interpretation might be away from the land of Israel to a foreign land. That's another way to take this expression from the presence of the Lord. Verse three. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We notice here he goes to Joppa. Joppa was a coastal city on the western coast of the land of Israel, eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea, but west coast of Israel. It was a port city. Naturally, everyone knew they could find a ship, a seafaring ship there to go wherever they wanted to go. Notice here he paid the fare. He paid the fare to sin. People usually pay money to sin. Sin doesn't often happen in a vacuum. People usually pay money to sin. And Jonah cared so much for disobedience, he didn't want to preach that he paid to sin. And went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord, adamantly refusing to obey God. That's Jonah. But will Jonah win or God? Verse 4, And the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. When sailors embark on their journeys... Do they usually embark when there is a terrible storm at sea? No. This must mean that they had embarked, because they're at sea when this happens, they embarked thinking it was safe, serene, peaceful, but it wasn't because God intervened. Verse 4, they think it's okay to set sail and Jonah's with them, right? They all think it's fine, but God hurled a great wind on the sea. A miracle. He performs this miracle. Sudden great storm on the sea. So great that the ship was about to break up. Now we're not talking about um, a rowboat. We're not talking about anything rinky-dinky. We're talking about ships. Yes, in ancient times, men constructed huge ships. They had the ability, they had the capability. Ancient documents show this outside the Bible and even pictures and so forth, that this was indeed the case. And they went great distances from Israel all the way to Europe and then um, south into um, south of, uh, on the western side of Africa, the eastern side of Africa and into Asia to um, to India, to China, to 
Japan, far places they went in ancient times. So, this was a significant enough of a vessel, and these men are there, that God hurled such a storm, it broke it up. Verse 5, Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. The sailors are afraid, but Jonah is unafraid. The sailors are awake, but Jonah is sound asleep. The sailors are on board in the upper deck, but Jonah goes down to the hold of the ship, lies down to sleep. Complete contrast. The sailors have the natural reaction. And in their natural reaction, verse 5, they also cry to their idols, to their pagan gods. Perhaps they had their idols on board with them, a small version of them. Perhaps not. Whatever the case, they are crying to their own gods. Perhaps Philistine gods, perhaps Phoenician gods, because of where Joppa is situated, and because both the Phoenicians on the northwest side of the land of Israel and the Philistines on the southwest side, they both worshipped idols and they both were expert sailors and merchants at sea. Both were. They cried to their pagan gods, their idols. Jonah, though, had fallen sound asleep. What's curious about this expression or this phrase, sound asleep, is the word used here in Jonah 1.5 is the same word in Genesis 2.21, 15.12, and 1 Samuel 26, 12. Genesis 2, 21, Genesis 15, 12, and 1 Samuel 26, 12. In each of these cases, those three previous cases, each one was a miracle. Miracle of God. So Jonah falling sound asleep here is likely not just that Jonah was exhausted and nervous and just wanted to sleep his troubles away. It's likely not just that. I think it had to be a miracle of God. In Genesis 2.21, that was when Adam was put to sleep by God for the surgery to take place, for a rib to be taken out of Adam so that God would make a woman, Eve. In Genesis 15.12, God put Abraham into a deep sleep in order to reveal a vision to him, a prophecy of the future, a deep sleep for that purpose. And in 1 Samuel 26, 12, that was when Saul, King Saul and his men were chasing David to murder and assassinate David. But God caused a deep sleep to fall on them so that they couldn't do that. And in fact, David by, the, by his men, one of his men, was able to take from Saul one of his possessions so that he would know once he awoke that David had the opportunity to assassinate Saul but didn't do it. So that was a deep sleep. And it says there in, Genesis, in 1 Samuel 26, 12, 
a deep sleep had fallen on them from the Lord, from the Lord. Likely here too, a deep sleep from the Lord. Verse six, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. The captain has to jolt Jonah, has to awaken him from his stupor. And how and says, how is it that you are asleep? How is it that you are sleeping? How could you have the audacity to sleep and put us in jeopardy? Here we have a callous Christian unconcerned about the souls of men. A callous Christian unconcerned about the souls of men. The men are afraid of dying, but Jonah's not afraid that these men might die. And even he might die. He's not afraid. And he's not praying. What's he doing? He's sleeping. Sounds like the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. The disciples are sleeping. They're not praying when they should have been praying. Jonah should have been praying to the Lord, but he's not praying. It takes here an unbeliever to tell Jonah to pray. Talk about ironies. An unbeliever is telling Jonah, commanding Jonah to pray to save everybody's life. Verse 7, And each man said to his mate, Come, let us cast lots, so that we may learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They cast lots, and Jonah is identified as the culprit. Jonah is identified as the culprit. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. The Lord is the one who told everyone Jonah was the guilty man. Verse 8, Then they said to him, Tell us now, on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Now that the lot has fallen on Jonah, they confront him with all of these questions. Tell us now, we're about to die and you're not doing anything? On whose account? So they want him to confess. What is your occupation? Is it something that you do um, that has caused this? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Based on his origin, based on his occupation, and what's his occupation? He's a prophet, right? His origin, country of origin, language, so forth, they would be able to know who he is. This must mean that Jonah not only spoke Hebrew, but he also spoke another language. Perhaps he spoke Phoenician. Perhaps he spoke Aramaic. Perhaps he spoke uh, the Philistine language. There was another language that they spoke that Jonah also spoke. That's how he was able to communicate with them 
and they wouldn't have asked him initially, who are you, where are you from? If he didn't know how to speak, they wouldn't have asked all these questions to find out because initially they would have known that he was from a certain place. So now they ask, and what does he say in verse 9? I am a Hebrew. The moment he says, I am a Hebrew, that answers, where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? It answers all of those. He didn't say, though, that he's a prophet, disobeying God. He didn't answer that part. And then he says in verse 9, I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He says, I fear the Lord God of heaven. The Lord God of heaven. He says he fears the Lord God of heaven. Well, that might be generally true, but it's not particularly true in this case. He's not fearing God right now. And he says God made the sea and the dry land. He fronts the word sea when normally you would say the dry land and the sea. But here, the sea, why? Because that's where they are and they're in trouble. The God who created the sea is the God who can help us. Okay, verses 10 to 14. 10 to 14. Then the men became extremely frightened and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. They became extremely frightened. Is Jonah frightened? No, he's too callous to be frightened. And they say, how could you do this? Do what? Flee from the presence of the Lord who made the sea? If God told you to do something, you better do it. The unbeliever, unbelievers tell the believer. If God told you to do something, you better do it. Verse 11, So they said to him, What should we do to you that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Now, they understand that God is a God of justice. The unbelievers understand that God is a God of justice. The believer in his moment of sin is not comprehending it properly, comprehending it enough to repent. And so, verse 12, Jonah knows what justice is. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you for I know that on account of me, this great storm has come upon you. There we have in Jonah's own words, verse 12, he knows why the great storm was hurled on the sea. He knows why. Because of Jonah's own sin. Jonah's own sin was the cause that jeopardized the men. So, if it's Jonah's sin, who deserves to be punished for his sin? Jonah. And what is the punishment? Throw me into the sea. 
My punishment is to be thrown into the sea. How is it then that Jonah thinks of it like this? Some of it may have to do with him being a prophet of God. However, it may rather be that Jonah knows, not only through prophecy, but through Scripture, that whatever punishment, whatever threat he put others in jeopardy of experiencing, he now deserves to experience that punishment. Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21. Whatever punishment you wanted an innocent man to experience, you should experience it once you are discovered. That's the principle of Deuteronomy 19, 15 to 21, which Jonah would have understood. Deuteronomy 19.15, a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall come before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days, and the judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you, and the rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall not show pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Verse 19, 19, 19 says, you sh Then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. So let's say that he accused his neighbor of murder. So what would the penalty be if the neighbor was charged with murder, sentenced to death. It would have been sentenced to death, right? For murder. So if the false witness, the malicious witness, accuses his innocent neighbor of murder, the judges investigate with witnesses, two or three witnesses, and they find that the innocent man is actually innocent. They find out that is the case. The one who rose up against him maliciously, falsely, he deserves to be put to death because he wanted his innocent neighbor to be put to death for the false charge of murder. That was also what happened in the book of Daniel. Remember that? Daniel chapter 6. The officials wanted Daniel to be eaten by lions. So what did the king do? King Darius, the pagan king, do? He understood justice too. Just as the officials wanted to happen to Daniel, once he was ex uh, the officials were exposed in Daniel 6, then Darius the king throws all of those men and their families into the lion's den. Daniel escapes and they are punished. 
The same happened in the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, Haman wanted all the Jews to be massacred on a certain day. But when Haman's plot was discovered, what were the Jews able to do? They were able to defend their lives, it says explicitly, to defend their lives, to defend themselves when their enemies attack them. And with the help of the king's officials, they would be able to defend themselves and kill their enemies, which they did in the book of Esther. It's likely that that's what's happening here. This is a matter of justice. So, verse 13, after Jonah gives them the prescription to peace and serenity at sea, verse 13, however, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not, for the sea was becoming even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord and said, We earnestly pray, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. Jonah tells them the solution. They don't act on it. And we see why they don't act on it. In 13, instead of acting on it, they just try to go back to shore. Right? Why do they try to go back to shore? because they are extremely careful about shedding innocent blood. Jonah didn't care about shedding innocent blood, but these unbelievers, they care about shedding innocent blood. That's why they were so desperately rowing to go back to shore. Verse 14, and then what do they do? They abandon prayer to their idols and pray to the Lord. It says it in verse 14, they called on the Lord. We earnestly pray, O Lord, for you, O Lord. And that Lord is the word Yahweh Adonai, the true God, not their idols. They pray to the true Lord, the God of Jonah. So, what happens? After they pray, they pray sincerely asking God not to hold them guilty for throwing Jonah into the sea, 15 and 16. So they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. He falls into the sea, and the sea stops its raging. Can you imagine that? Suddenly it stops. What would the natural reaction be? The proper natural reaction be? Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Does that not sound like conversion? Conversion of the sailors? To fear God greatly? to offer a sacrifice to the Lord? It does not say what kind of sacrifice, whether it was animal sacrifice or a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, such as Jonah chapter 2 is. 
In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. 1.16 and 2.9 have some overlapping terminology. So, they fear God, they sacrifice to God, and they make vows to God. To the true God. They made vows. We would say they confessed their sins or very loosely made a commitment. But in Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Right? So that's the confession I was speaking of. That they made a vow or a confession like that to God. These sailors did. Meantime, what happens? 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Another miracle. This would be the third or fourth miracle now in this chapter. God appointed a great fish. God sent it there. It doesn't say whether God made the fish or whether God directed a certain fish. It's likely that God directed a certain fish to go and swallow Jonah. And Jonah was there three days and three nights. Now, to conclude, let's see what Matthew and Luke have on this matter, and it's actually from the lips of Christ. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here the queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon behold something greater than Solomon is here we see here that Christ says that the sign the single sign the main sign, the solitary sign, is the sign of Jonah the prophet. And Christ considers him to have been in the sea monster three days and three nights, just as he would be in the earth three days and three nights. In verse 41, the men of Nineveh will judge the men, that is, the scribes and the Pharisees and other unbelievers of this generation shall judge them, condemn them on the day of judgment. That's like 1 Corinthians 6, 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? 
That means the men of Nineveh were saints judging the men of the world. And the comparison, behold, something greater than Jonah is here, which is Christ himself. Another is the, the parallel would, would be in Luke 11, Luke 11, 29 to 32. Luke 11, 29 to 32. And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, notice that expression, a sign to the Ninevites. We must ask a sign of what? Sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. One more place. Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. Matthew 16, 1 to 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and, testing him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the, day is, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. Why did Christ focus on the sign of Jonah as the only sign given to them? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Amen.